You're listening to Vinyl Tap, inside the music industry with Michael Parisi. Hi, my name is Michael Parisi. I've been a part of the music industry for over 30 years. I've worked in all facets of the business, from promotions, marketing, A&R and artist development. I've also worked for and with major record labels. I've run my own labels and my music publishing company, and I'm still an artist manager today. So take a seat in the room with me as I talk with some of the biggest movers, shakers and visionaries of the music industry. There'll be lots of stories, insights and intel that you won't hear anywhere else. So sit back, relax and welcome to Vinyl Tap. He's an English record producer, music manager, author and journalist and some may say a living legend. Simon Napier-Bell has managed some of the biggest names in pop history. The Yardbirds, Mark Boland from T-Rex, Sinead O'Connor, Ultravox, Boney M and Wham. As a record producer, he has also worked with the likes of Jimmy Page, with the Yardbirds of course, Burt Bacharach and Dusty Springfield, having produced her only number one song, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. These days, you'll find Simon behind the typewriter, or should I say keyboard, penning his experiences through a catalogue of really great books, one of which documents the drug culture inside the British music industry, Black Vinyl White Powder, and the other, I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch, outlines the story of how he took Wham! on tour in China at a time when people said he couldn't. What I didn't know, however, was that he played a very important role in shaping Australian pop. It turns out, He worked for the Alberts label, home to ACDC, in the early 1970s as a talent spotter and he was responsible for uncovering one of this country's most iconic pop acts and by sheer accident too. I cornered Simon up at the Big Sound Conference in Brisbane recently and we had a real blast talking about the past but also about the future. So sit back, relax and enjoy this next instalment of Vinyl Tap Inside the Music Industry with Simon Napier-Bell. Here we are at Big Sound with the man himself who just came out of his own keynote, Mr. Simon Napier-Bell. Simon, welcome to Very Brisbane. Very nice to be here, Michael. And welcome to Big Sound. Excellent. How was the keynote? It was good. Um, it was uh, calm. It wasn't a noisy one. Um, but Lars is a very thorough interviewer, and he managed to get through everything I thought he wouldn't get through. Did you get great questions from the uh, audience at, at the end? Great. Um, I got questions. I don't know if there were earth-shattering ones, but right. they, were, they were good. Well, let me, let, let, let's start with um, some of my questions, because I've got – we could be here for days, because your um, CV is unbelievable. Well, the limit is three days. So. Three days, is it? But I, I, I had the, uh, the great fortune of uh, enjoying dinner with you last night and hearing some of your stories. <laughs> Um, some of which we could talk about today, some we won't because I've heard we've heard Maybe them. You, you should have bought the mic last night. I, I, sh- I should, I should. <laughs> it was so, it was fantastic. But let's talk about because you were a musician yourself, right? You yeah, started I, as a songwriter. Yeah. And so, who were your mentors when you were growing up? Oh, do you know, I didn't have any. I think I had anti mentors. Um, when I was eleven or twelve. I, I'm not like if I'm a kid, I used to listen to Top of the Pops, which is um, in those days it wasn't from England because England British Radio didn't play records. BBC never played records. It was a a thing with the Musicians' Union which prevented them playing records. So hit songs are always played by live bands, you know, like the BBC Accordion Band or something dreadful. Like right. that. Elvis Presley didn't sound too good played that way. 
But we had a top 10 or top 20 radio broadcast which came from Radio Luxembourg, which was beyond the limits of the regulations of the Resistance Union. And if you stayed up to midnight on a Sunday night, you could hear that, which I wasn't allowed to do when I was 10, but I had a little radio and I put it in my bedclothes and listened. And um, year by year as I got older, 8, 9, 10, the music got worse and worse and worse until the hits were things like How Much Is That Doggy in the Window or or If I'd Known You Were Coming Out of Baked a Cake. And I decided I hated pop music. There was no more pop music for me. And just at that time, my brother was given a trumpet for Christmas and he gave up trying to learn it after three days. And so he gave it to me and I learnt it. And then I... How long did it take you? If not three days. <laughs> Ten years, and then I gave it up. <laughs> but um, I started listening to trumpet players, and that mm. meant jazz. And so by the age of 11, I was beginning to listen to trad jazz, and I completely, totally fell in love with it. I didn't listen to another pop record for 10 years. And trad jazz just took over my life. And 11 and 12, 13, I listened to every trad jazz. There was. So if you, there were not mentors, but obviously I listened to trumpet players. So well, What, what kind of artists? Are we talking Count Bessie? Or, or, oh, or, no, no, we're talking trad jazz, you know, right. clarinet, trombo, trombo, trombone, trumpet. Uh, you know, listening to Louis Armstrong, listening to Big Spiderbeck, listening to, to um, I can't even think of their names now, but all the guys who played in those, right, in those the, traditional era. trad jazz. Mm. Right. By the time I got to school, 13 or 14, I'd begun to listen to modern jazz. So then, you know, you get to... Uh, the, the big bands you're talking about and mm. Dizzy Gillespie and Shorty Rogers yeah. and things like that. But so I couldn't say they were mentors, but obviously I listened to trumpet players because that's what I was playing. Yeah. Now, surely there was one pivotal moment in your early early career or early early life as a, as a teen where you went, hmm, I want to be involved in the music industry or was there an industry to speak of at the time? Um, when I left school, I, I, I mean, my education was wasted on me. I was sent to public school, which is, you know, in England, it's a private school. Of course. <coughs> and I, I left at 16 without taking A-levels and all the things you go there to do. Um, and I got a job as band boy with Johnny Dankless Band. Now, a band boy is what you'd now call a roadie. And these were big bands. Johnny Dankless Band was one of them, which toured around England like rock groups did years later. Mm. So every Monday morning you went to uh, outside Madame Tussauds at Baker Street Station, there was a row of buses, eight or nine buses, and each of those had... A band. There was the most famous one was Ted Heath's band was, on the bus. Yeah, Ted Heath's band. Right. There'd be uh, Joe Loss's band. All these famous band leaders. And one was Johnny Dankworth, which is a more jazz inclined band. And these were twenty piece orchestras or bands. Um, you know, with tradition. They were all like Count Basie type band. Mm. You know, mm. um, and they toured all over and went to dance halls. And that was the pop music of the day on tour. And I became uh, road. Tour manager, what did I say? It's called it's a roadie tour manager, band boy. It's called band boy for Johnny Dankless band, which meant um, you you took all the instruments out of the back of the bus and you took them up three floors at the Flandudno Empire. A proper roadie back in the day. It was a roadie. Yeah, yeah. but you had one. Yeah, right. You know, so I set up the drums, I set up the bass, I set there was music stands and music to read in those days too. And then after the gig, they all went and got drunk, and I'd unload them. I'd put them all back in the bus and the bass went along the back seat um, it was a miserable job but I was there amongst this band and of course I didn't want to do that I wanted to play the trumpet with the band Right. that was my way in uh, you know and after a while I told them I, I played the trumpet too and they said let's have a listen they said well you better stick to band boying you know <laughs> forget the trumpet sure. um, but that's why I was there but bit by bit being around them 
I really liked the music business. They all told stories and they gossiped and they said what was going on. And it seemed in the music business, everybody knew everybody else and they knew everybody else's backstory and who was shagging who and all who, know, who did what drugs. <laughs> and, um, and this is 1950, remember, so it's not like today. Uh, but I, I got an affinity for the business the backside way back then yeah but i didn't go into it then i mean i went off to america then and became because you started as, as a songwriter didn't you much 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 later i'm mean, from where from where we are now i went to america and became okay. a professional musician right and played trumpet in nightclubs and pubs and bars for two years until i decided i really wasn't a very good trumpet player and gave it up and then came back to england and um started uh, when I came back to India, I went to the film industry. I became an assistant film editor. But from that, I moved into music, and then the songwriting came up. And, had, and what was your first song you ever, you ever wrote? And how did that come about? The first song I wrote yeah, was ever. the number one song. I mean, it was, um, I, was, I was now in the beginning of the music business. I'd become manager of the Yardbirds, so we're jumping ahead to We're the jumping song. ahead, but I want to, we, want to, we want to talk about the Yardbirds. But <laughs> so, yeah, so um, I had, my best friend was Vicky Wickham, who was the producer, one of the producers at Ready, Steady, Go. She was the, the woman who booked all the acts. Woman, same age as me, 22, 23. And um, we were great friends. We had dinner every night. And she was best friends with Dusty Springfield. And one day she came to me and said, Dusty has just come back from Italy. Uh, with a song which won the San Remo Song Festival. And she wants to sing it in English. Where does she get English lyrics? And I said, why don't we write them? And, and Vicky said, well, because we've never written lyrics before. And I said, oh, this, that, that, that puts you off. And so we agreed to write the lyrics. So one night after dinner, we went back to Vicky's flat and we sat down and we, we wrote the lyrics, which is how that song came about. And the song was? You Don't Have to Say Love, love me. me, which was a, a, a global smash, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we went from never having written a song in our lives to having a number one song. And, of course, you know, it goes to your head a bit. You think, oh, I'm a song. I was going to say, what happens to your life when you have your first ever song is a number one song? What happens to you? Uh, what happens to well, you? Well, you know, I'm someone who doesn't much like doing things twice, so that my first instinct was I've done that. No, no more songwriting. Let's do something else. Um, the alternative, we, we were called by United Artists Publishing, would we like to sign a publishing deal with them? And they offered money, so we thought, yes, we would like to. But it involved flying over to New York to meet them. And then in New York, they took us to the Brill Building, which is the course, famous, famous building in New York yes. where all the songwriters worked. And they said, we want you to come here and, and work in the Brill Building. And they took us up to see it. And it's pretty much like a prison. I mean, there mm. are five floors of nothing but dim corridors with little doors every two yards, three yards down the passageway with a little cubby hole, a little peephole, and you look through the peephole and inside there's a piano and two stools and two people sitting there working. And I said, it looks terrible. And he said, no, no, the greatest songwriters in the world work here. And of I, course. I said, I don't believe that. What, how do they work? They said, well, they come every morning, they work from 10 to 6 every day, five days a week. A full-time job. And I said, that's everything I've gone through music business to avoid doing. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Who on earth comes and does that? And they said, well... Come in, they open the door. Hello, Carol. This is Carol King, Simon X. Wow. Carol King. Next one, Burt Backrack. Next one. I mean, the most famous songwriters in the world sitting in these little in cells. building. And Vicky and I both said, no, thank you. You know, we go back to swinging London and drinks and drugs and sex and all the things we're enjoying. But you met, you met Burt Backrack. Can you work with Burt Backrack, right? Yeah, that was a bit later. Um, I was, it was one of the films I was working on, which is What's New Pussycat? Yeah. And Bert was commissioned to write the film score. He'd never written a film score. He'd had, God, he, by then he'd had 10 number ones, mainly with Dion Warwick and Perry Como, fantastic songwriter. And he was commissioned to write the music for the film, and he flew over and wrote the, 
music. But he'd never written a film score, and there were 42 music sections. And my job as music editor uh, was to take these little sections out of the film and take them to him in his house, where he had a moviolo, which is an old-fashioned machine you ran film and soundtrack through simultaneously with a big clattering noise. And he would look at each section and then sit down and write to each section, yeah. Um, but um, when he came to the recording session, he'd written 42 tunes. And a film score is basically one tune, at mm. the most two, and some basic other theme music. And he flew back to America, and I, I laid all the music down so it fitted the film. It was terrible because it wasn't a, it wasn't a cohesive film score. And the producer called me in and said, what are we going to do? The producer and director called me in. You know, we all agreed this wasn't a film score, although this, the theme song, What's the Pussycat, was magnificent. Fantastic song, a beautiful performance by Tom Jones. A couple of the other songs were good too, one by Dion Warwick. And the producer said to me, could you turn this into a film score? Well, 23 years old, one of the greatest songwriters wow. in the world has just written all these songs. Like, what an opportunity. So, yes, please, I could. So I stayed in the cutting room pretty well nonstop for six weeks. And Ed, I took What's New Pussycat and I re-recorded it without the voice on and I put an instrumental version together and a couple of the other songs and edited it all down and turned it into a film score. And what did Bacharach think? Well, it was reported that when, because I really messed his music up. Yeah. I had no respect. I was a typical brash 23-year-old, well, you, yeah. you know. Uh, it was reported when he went to the premiere in New York, he stormed out two minutes after the titles finished um, in a fury. But um, the next day, the New York Times said, in Burt Bacharach, we found a new master of the film score. So then he called me up and said, thank you. Really? And did you work with him again after that? The next day, he called me. I was very gracious of him because he'd actually learned something from what I'd done. And I was not a a music writer. I couldn't have written his music, but I did know how to turn it into a score. Uh, Yeah, we got on very well after that. And many, many years later, when Wham played in uh, the stadium tour and played in Los Angeles, um, he was one of the first people to say, can I come along? And yeah. So 30 years later, he turned up with, with Dion Warwick at that gig. And so from songwriting, how did you go into artist management? Or we, is, is there more to the songwriting story that we don't know about? No, not really. Uh, but I'd already gone into artist management. I, I had gone into film editing and was an assistant film editor. And this was before the Burt Bacharach film. And um, I just, I, I really wanted to, the future was either going to be into films, in which I was working in, mm. um, or somewhere else. And films, I looked at films, the top film directors in the world. I mean, I was working on all the films by Clive Donner, who's a top director. And you looked, at, he finished a film, and then his idea for the next film came along, and he spent a year setting it up and getting the finance, and a year making it, and a year promoting it. And if at the end of three years the film was a failure, he'd lost three years of your life. In the music business, it took two days to make an album. Albums in those days were made live. Of course. The band there and the singer. You could have it out the next week. If it was a flop, two weeks later, you could be doing something else. So two, two weeks is against three years. And I just thought, as a young person, who wants to be in the film industry? So I looked at how to get in the music industry, and management seemed like a good way in. And your first act you ever managed was? It was uh, an an idea I had. It was a young guy and a a girl, both in their early 20s. He was white, very white, blonde. I love this story, by the way. Pretty-looking guy. Uh, And she was a a black girl. And, um, oh, God, I might as well tell you how I met. I'd met, I'd I'd shagged both of them. I mean, that's how it came about. (laughs) 
you know, uh, on on swinging London swinging nights. London. Out. And they, this was the first interracial act on the British scene, right? Well, I, I knew both these people, and they were both calling me up and saying, "Oh, Simon, you said we'd do this or that, or you'd marry me or something." And, and I thought, <laughs> as you would, you know, how do I how do I deal with this problem? And uh, and I knew the girl could sing beautifully. And so I thought, that's, that's it. I'll put them together and make a singing duo. And it didn't occur, it occurred to me it's a very good image, this beautiful black girl, a beautiful white, very sort of white-looking guy, pale skin and blonde. But um, it didn't occur to me how, how different that would be. And I got these photographs taken. I remember they were beautiful photos. I, it wasn't David Bailey. It was another top photographer. And they were beautiful. They were sort of naked from the shoulders up. I mean, not naked at all. Um, and sort of touching each other, the faces touching, this dark face and this light face. And I blew them up really, really big, uh, huge pictures, and sent them out with a record to all the radio and TV producers. And the way to get promoted then, and still is in England, is TV, not radio. Mm. And um, there were something had eight different television shows, which were the ones which could really break a record. And I sent, and I blew these pictures up so they were A1, which is very big, won't go through a letterbox. Yes. And in those days, we had a proper post service thing, and the post came at 6.30 in the morning. And so at every television producer's house in the country the next morning, the postman had to ring the bell and wake somebody up so they knew they'd got a letter. something important. 6.30 in the morning, you don't want the postman ringing. Yes. <laughs> you know, so they opened the letter, and there was this stunning picture. And oh, there were 50, 100 singles a week coming out. There was room for one more on the radio. It didn't matter how good your record was, there wasn't room for it. And bit by bit, I'd call through all of them and called them up and said, Yo, did you get that record? Did you look at that, the photo? Will you play the record? And they all said what you had to Oh, you know, it's very difficult. There's lots of records out this week. We have, don't have room for it. And I said, you're racist. Wow. I was just, I was really horrible. And wow. Blunt. And only when you're 23. But let me ask you this, were they racist? No. No. But when you're, just... 20, when you're 23, you'll do brash things you won't of do course. when you're older. No, I didn't even stop to think whether they were or not. I just said, you're racist. And they said, no, 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 well, I'm not at all. You know, I'm, I'm very liberal. I read The Guardian. <laughs> very clever. I said, no, you're racist. And every single one played the, every single one played the song. And it ended up being a big hit, right? Yeah, I got eight television shows, and we wow. got a number five record. Wow. It wasn't a very good song. Uh, and and I'd, uh, I'd written that song, actually. That was the first song I ever wrote. I wrote that song. It was very, I love you, you love me. This is rubbish. Yeah, pop, pure pop. Pure pop. But here's an interesting thing. One of the television shows was called Thank Your Lucky Stars. It was the second biggest show, Ready, Steady, Go. The three shows, Top of the Pops, Ready, Steady, Go, Thank Your Lucky Stars. Those were the three big shows. Thank Your Lucky Stars. When we did the rehearsal, the end of the rehearsal, I ran through it, and I said to Diane, the, the young black girl, when you finish the song, the last called bang, turn and kiss Nikki on the cheek. And the producer rushed down and said, you can't do that. I said, what? He's kissing her. She's kissing him on the cheek? Yeah. No, you can't, do you can't do that. Well, of course, when the show came along, it's exactly what we did. And we were banned from that show forever. Forever. But you know, a black girl kissing a white guy on the cheek in 1966, it never occurred to me it would, would cause any offense. So much controversy. You're a master of controversy, aren't you, over the years? <laughs> well, it, what it taught me was that's what management's about. Yeah. It's about a great song, a great image, and the controversy. Yeah. Uh, there's no, I, I think this goes, every major artist in the world, no major artist has ever made it on the music alone. They always have an image yeah. which matches it. Various times people have thought the image was so strong they could get a hit even without a great song. No, that doesn't work either. Mm. You have to find simultaneously an image and a song which matches. 
and you have to have a gimmick to get it off the ground. Or, so a, be, or a story, right? A story. Yeah. A, a gimmick, a story, whatever, mm. which gets off the ground. Those three things. But when I went through the history, and I've written lots of books now, and I've studied much more about how the industry works, there's no major artist that's ever happened without having an image and a mu music which matches in quality and a story which launched them. And so when people come to me and say, what are you looking for in a new artist? It has to be those three things. Those three things, yeah, I agree. Let's, let's talk about some controversies you've been involved with over the years. I'm intrigued now. What else have you used to your advantage? What have you, not so much fabricated, but what have you conjured? It's probably the right Well, I mean, way. there was an artist which I didn't have a huge success with in the end called John's Children in the uh, beginning of the 80s. And they were three very good, very good looking young guys. And um, I, I made a good single with them. They had a very striking image, very, very striking. And I had um, a top photographer f copying on on the same thing I'd done 20 years earlier with Dan and Nikki. I had a. <coughs> excuse me. I had a really great photograph done of them, uh, naked torsos, looking great and young. It preceded boy groups. Boy groups weren't really around in those days. And um, sorry, I said 20 years ago, let's go back. You have to take all that again. This is 1960s still. Wow, it's still the 60s. I got that completely wrong. Yes, I was going to um, say. I so I was copying what I'd done with Dan and Nikki two years earlier. Um, and I had them strip off. So they were taking this time, you know, from just below the shoulders mm. up. Uh, three very good-looking young guys, and it proceeded. There were no boy groups. You could say the Beatles were a boy group, but they weren't sold as a boy band. And mm. uh, this was, if you like, the first boy band-looking boy band, and we did a fantastic poster of them uh, and put them up all over London, so everyone saw this great image. And we put a record out, which is a pretty good record, and uh, hyped it. I, I came up with good stories. And we got it into the bottom of the charts in the UK. But in America, we got it the top of the California charts. Right. We got it the top five in the charts of California. And so I thought I'd make an album. And they weren't a great group. They were a second-grade group. Right. They might have got better, but you know, they weren't really that great. And, but we made an album. I made it quite quickly in two afternoons, all the songs they played on a live gig. We recorded it like a live gig. And then I thought, this isn't good enough. And so I went to a uh, sound library and I bought uh, a sound uh, recording of the Arsenal Football Club uh, Saturday afternoon, cheering, and I dubbed it all over it and turned it into a live concert. Wow. Well, in excess, I mean, there was more cheering. Every time there were some bad notes, up uh, the cheering and the screaming, I got some screaming from somewhere else. I got some screaming from a Beatles concert and, you know, the cheering from the Arsenal football crowd. Wow. Dubbed it all over it and called the album Orgasm. And, you know, would you believe there it was? And everyone wants to write about it. Number three in the chart in California. It hadn't even been released, just wow. pre-sales. So that's the sort of gimmickry which is needed. But that group didn't really happen big in the end. But it is the nature of the music business yeah. to need the image, the music, and the gimmick. With John Stroden, we really missed on the music. It wasn't strong enough. Let me ask you this. When haven't you needed a gimmick? When did pure artistry take over it without having really. to work. I mean, you could say with Wham because they were brilliant, but of course it was a gimmick. I mean, they had this Starsky and Hutch, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid image, the image that had really never been a duo like that. Mm. <clears throat> They'd been the Beverly, the Everly brothers. They were brothers. And they weren't even friends. They mm. didn't like each other much. Um, there'd been one out of the two duos, you know, uh, I, I suppose uh, Paul Simon... Simon and Garfunkel, Simon and Garfunkel to yeah. some degree, but they didn't have any sexuality between them. 
And what Wham had was not sexuality in a homosexual way, but in the way that, say, Butch Cassidy was sometimes kid. Mm. They were both sexy kids who went out and found girls, and at the end of the film, they threw the girls away and went off together. There was a, a, it was a bromance. And that was a, a visual story rather than a spoken story, mm. but it was a very strong story. And that went into the imagery, their first hit, which was Bad Boys, really, really conveyed that. Yeah, it did. It did. Oh, there was. I remember as a kid and, and my Go sister. Go back on that. And their first hit, oh, Young Guns. Oh, yes. Really conveyed that. Yes. Very strongly. And they did a Top of the Pops when they both, you know, pretty much naked from the waist up. And um, they danced brilliantly together, very homoerotic. No sense of homosexuality. It was just like they had the two girls there, but it was sexy. And um, it caught everyone's attention. And there again, you had the image with the music completely equal. And the gimmick was, again, not told as a story, but it was this very unusual image of the two guys, which you normally get in a Hollywood film. Were George and Andrew very involved in the decision-making, or was that you giving them impetus to, to try something new? Or was so, they very... To totally involved. People right. often put down Andrew. Andrew was absolutely 50% of Wham. George went to a new school when he was 12. He had glasses. He was podgy, curly hair. Uh, when he walked in the classroom, all the boys laughed at the new boy. And the teacher said, who's he going to sit next to? And Andrew put his hand up. And so George sat next to Andrew. Andrew was the lad around the classroom, the yeah. good-looking one they all looked up to, yeah. told the jokes and misbehaved. And George just looked at him, wanted to be like that. So George spent all his school days trying to look like Andrew. Okay, Andrew. And when they decided to form a pop group, the image was Andrew, the real one, and Andrew, the freak, fake one. Yeah, yeah, right. But the music came from George. Yeah. So they were absolutely a 50-50 partnership. Yeah. In image, in, for image, 50-50 partnership. <laughs> image and music. And Andrew was no less than George was in what that What do you was. make of the documentary? Was that a, an accurate portrayal I of what actually happened? I think it sells it incredibly well. I mean, Andrew was the person who pushed George mm. forward, who gave George the confidence to go out on stage and perform. Mm. When the Wham! first played, it was Andrew the girl screamed at, not George. Yes. And George looked at Andrew he's got blonde hair so soon George had blonde hair he copied Andrew very quickly yeah, you got that sense watching the documentary and once George had assimilated all Andrew's self-confidence then he didn't need Andrew mm. and by then Andrew was pretty bored because you know being famous isn't much fun and you're only famous because you really need that love from an audience and mm. if you're a well-adjusted person who's brought up without that desperate need for it um, you know Andrew by the time he was 20 I'd had enough two years of yeah. fame made some money great fun yeah. Time to go and lead a normal life. Yeah. George needed more. Yeah, and you could sense that through the documentary as well. Let's talk <laughs> about, um, you, you, talk, you touched on the three fundamental ingredients to make a career, you know, music, um, story, which, you know, which is all the all the, all the la That's just to launch a career. To launch a career. The story can dwindle afterwards. The image needs to stay there, though. What are, what are the other fundamentals, however, do you think? Well, you need, you, to under, you need to understand the business. You need to be driven. People often say to me, you know, what do you look for in a new artist? He's got to sing well. And, you know, that, no, it doesn't matter on the slightest. Everything can be taught. And the number of people who are tone deaf is few and far between. It's like mm. one in a thousand. Anyone can be taught to sing, can be taught to dance, taught what clothes to put on. What they can't be taught is to need success. And always these artists are people who, uh, in every case, they're people who sometime in their childhood didn't get 
love from someone they need it from at a moment they need it right. and it creates in them an incredible drive to be liked and loved and wanted we talked about last night yeah and that is what they need more than anything else when you sense that in somebody you know they they're going they're going to give you the energy to manage them the energy doesn't come from me it comes from them and and then of course it helps if they're also good looking and if they can write songs but they're not the primary things it's that energy yeah and i i even in my in my career i've always maintained that I love working with artists who have a vision for themselves. If they've got a vision for themselves, then I can help them with that vision and facilitate that vision. Without that vision, when you know, how can I manage you? No, I mean, I, I've had the same thing me, with or, you. Or, I've had artists come to me all brought to me by their parents or something, and they sing magnificently. Five octaves, perfect. They can copy any famous singer. They're not going to be stars because no. they haven't got any. They had lovely, lovely upbringings. They're perfectly happy at home. They haven't got any drive, any desire. Yeah. And you get the other one who's been kicked around at home uh, but hasn't got much talent, but they'll, they'll develop the talent if you give them a chance. Now, let's get to the nitty-gritty. So let's talk about the favourite artists you've ever managed and why, and then are not so favourite and for whatever reason, because I, I, I'm intrigued by this, because you've worked with so many fantastic artists over the years. Surely there's a favourite, and surely there's one where you went, oh, God, I've had my time again. I wouldn't have done that one. Um. That's difficult to say. I, you can't manage an artist if you really dislike them. That's impossible. It's far too much. There's far too much has to go into an artist of yourself. Um, there are artists who are excessively difficult, but basically they, they should be. I mean, if an, art, an artist is probably as good an artist as is difficult, or she is difficult. Um, ones I've managed I haven't liked. Not really. I didn't get on well with Jimmy Page at all when he was in the Yardbirds. To the degree that in the end, um, I told him I'm not managing you and I didn't take a management percentage from, from one-fifth of the money the group kind of gave to him without a management percentage. But he's a charming guy. I don't mm. know why we didn't get on. You know, I look at him now, I think he's such a nice person. I mean, he can be difficult, so Charles should be. We just rubbed each other up the wrong way at that moment. I don't know why. He's the only one I can think of I didn't get on with to that extent. And I, I think it was as much me at fault as, he, as him. And artists I've looked at and wished I managed, almost nobody, because every artist is so difficult. However much you like them as an artist, you think, if I'd managed them, I would have found out all those other sides, which I wouldn't have liked as much. Yes. So I, I don't have any regrets at all. either. I mean, there was a great story with Neil Tennant, who was, um, uh, when Wham! were making the video of Careless Whisper, and we did it in Miami, and by then, Wham! were pretty big stars. I mean, they'd had two, three number ones. And um, Neil Tennant was a journalist with the NME. And I had no idea he'd had anything to do with music at all other than he, was a, he wrote about it. And we decided we'd give five journalists permission to come with us on the photo shoot, on the video shoot. And he was one of them. So we gave the NME a pass and they chose Neil to go. And on the second or third night we were in Miami, Neil came to me and said, I hope you don't mind, I, I want to give you this cassette of my band. And I was angry with him. I said, look, you, if everyone did that, I mean, it'd be hopeless. You're here as a journalist, you've got to pass to be a journalist. Stipping you a demo tape, yeah. You know, and I, was... I threw it out the window. <laughs> oh, no. I, in my memory, I did it in front of him, but I think probably I didn't do it in front of him. I probably sat on the bar next to me when he went, went off, and then I threw it out later. But anyway, I do remember throwing it out the window. And, of course, it was these Petrop Boys' first album. Wow. Uh, West End Boys. Yeah, oh, that was a massive, a massive hit. That whole first record was a massive hit. You know, um, about eight or nine months later, I was um, in in Tokyo, 
And there's a three-hour trip to the airport in Tokyo. And I thought, let me buy a few cassettes so I've got something to listen to. And I had a, a it wasn't a Walkman, it was a portable Sony battery-operated thing. It's pre-Walkman. And I used to carry that everywhere with me when I flew. And I bought these six cassettes. I just said, what are the latest six cassettes come out, popular ones? And I put the first one in and I listened for 45 minutes and it was, I was transfixed. I turned it over and listened again. I listened four times between Tokyo and the airport and that was the album I'd thrown out the window. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> I never regret that either. No, of course I mean, not. But who have, knows, you, I might, have you seen Neil since? Or obviously. And who knows? There's a great, there's something happens between manager and artist which makes them happen. And they went with Tom Watkins, Watkins who was the most unlikely manager for them. So brash and non-intellectual and, and bolshy and difficult. And it worked perfectly. And perhaps it wouldn't with me. Yeah, right. You know, and I'm sure Tom was a large part of what made him a success. Yeah, that's like, yeah, it's called sliding doors, I guess, right? Mm. <laughs> now, Simon, um, you worked in so many countries. And I didn't realise until I really read, you know, got into and, and dug deep into your, into your career that you have a, oh, Australia has a special place in your history. <laughs> I and came to Australia to avoid an English winter. Um, but you I worked thought, at Alberts, right? Yeah, I came here, uh, I thought I'd come for two or three weeks to avoid the winter mm. or to get away for one month and um, got bored and um, uh, thought I'd make some records. So I went to RCA. And they played me uh, uh, some demos by a girl singer they'd just signed called Alison McCullum, an amazing voice. Mm. And they said, would you like to make a single with us? I said, yeah, that, that passed the time nicely. And um, so I went off looking for songs. And one way or another, I found myself to Albert's, who was the, the major music publisher at the time, and got to meet Ted Albert. And I told him I've got this great singer and played him. And he said, yeah, she's great. Maybe you can help me. And he said, we, we signed uh, a few years ago when I started running this company, I signed uh, two singers called Vander and Young, Harry Vander and George Young, and gave them quite a lot of money. And it was fine because they had a hit. And they formed a group called the Easy Beats. They had three hits. I knew the Easy Beats. In fact, in England, I'd even recorded one of their songs and done a cover version and had a hit with it. So I said, oh, they're great. He said, well, they haven't. The Easy Beats broke up, and now I'm having to pay them their money every year, and we're not getting any hits to cover it. So if you could revitalize their career with a hit. So he paid me a few songs, and one was called Superman. It seemed to fit Alison. Mm. And um, so I did the record with her, and it, was, it went to number three or four. Yeah, it was a big and so Ted said, come back, come back. <laughs> Stay, don't go home. Yeah. Um, so I stayed six months. And I did all that Vander and Young songs. Every time I recorded, not just his artists, I recorded artists of all sorts. Of, I don't remember their names. Soft Rock, Little Patty, Bobby Marcini, there were a lot of them. But they always did Vander and Young songs. Always. And we got hits with all of them. And John Paul Young, were you involved in that somehow? In a roundabout way? <laughs> I I've discovered heard, I've heard, I've, heard very, I've heard various stories. I, what's the, one what's the of truth? The song, one of the songs Ted Out gave me. Uh, I really, really liked it. It was a Vander and Young song. Yep. But we, I, we didn't have an artist suitable. And it's called Pasadena. And mm. it, their demo was pretty second rate. It was just a loop. It was a drum loop. And it even wasn't quite perfect in time. It had almost like a limp to it. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. Mm. And I liked it. I liked, the, I liked the limpy quality. And it was about it was a long, long way it's to Pasadena. As if the guy's walking along a long, long straight road. And it was a very nice, hooky, catchy song. And I said, That's, that'll be a hit. And Albert said, Ted said, well, who's going to sing it? And I said, I don't know, but don't worry. I'll go and f I'll f I promise <laughs> you I'll find somebody. And Ted was so convinced I was tr telling the truth that I would find somebody that he booked uh, the best studio, which is in Melbourne. 
uh, for two weeks ahead. And I said, I need a string section. So he booked the Melbourne Symphony string section. And he booked uh, three air tickets, one for me, one for him, and one for the singer. In those days in Australia, air tickets didn't have a name on them. They were like train tickets. You just booked the air ticket. And so I said, I'll find a singer. And in those days, Oxford Street, from end to end, was was pubs with bands. I thought, I'll go out one night, pick one out. It's not a difficult song. Find somebody who looks good. And I forgot about it. And then the day before the session, Ted called me up and said, you know, is everything fixed? And my heart went, oh, my oh. God, I totally forgot this. And you hadn't, you hadn't found someone at that what point? What did I do? No, I hadn't even looked. <laughs> oh, no. And it was the next morning. And I, and I thought, no problem, don't panic. Get the gig guide. I'll go down to Oxford Street. We'll find somebody. And it's, it was Wednesday, and Oxford Street closed on Wednesdays. God knows why, but Oxford Street closed. And the only gig anywhere was in Newcastle, which I'd never even heard of at that time. And so I got on a train. I went to Newcastle. And there was one pub. That's where the gig was. And I went down the main street, walked to the pub, and it was horrible. It was packed, it stank of vomit, and the band playing. Are we talking late 60s or yeah, early 70s? Oh, late 60s, yeah, early, yeah, early yeah. 70s. Oh, my God. Oh, sorry, all the pub owners are going to call me up tomorrow and complain. But it was horrible. Noisy, brash, stank of vomit, and the band playing were dreadful. And I thought, oh, flip. Uh, so what I walked I out to the balcony. And standing on the balcony was quite a nice-looking young guy with a sort of air of confidence, soaking a cigarette. And he said, horrible in there, isn't it? And I said, it certainly is. And I said, I don't know. So why are you here? Why is he there if it's so horrible? He said, I'm in a band. I've got to sing later. And I said, do you sing? He said, yeah. I said, are you any good? He said, well, I think I am. And I said, look, here's a cassette. If you learn this song tomorrow, and here's an air ticket, and you fly to Melbourne, I'll make you a star. And he said, okay. And I, I went back. Didn't hear him sing. I figured, oh, I you didn't see him at all that night? Well, what's the difference? I thought if I hear him sing, I'm still going to say the same thing because there's no one else. So you took a chance? <clears throat> took a chance, but if I'd heard wow. him sing, I'd be taking I thought, better take a chance without hearing him sing. I might hear him sing, he might put me off. And then that's I have nobody. an incredible story. That's how John Paul Young was actually found. By chance that's in that's Newcastle. I heard this this morning and I was going, I've got to ask Simon that's this. That's how he was found. That is a crazy story. And I flew down the next morning with, with Ted. And um, John's ticket was for three in the afternoon. I flew down with Ted in the morning, and uh, we took we used the backing track with a sort of limpy drum sound on it, which I loved. And we I conducted. I'm, mm. I'm an arranger too, so I'd done the arrangement. We conducted the strings. The track sounded pretty good, and I was nervous the guy wouldn't come. I didn't know if he'd turn up. And Ted was saying, "What's the singer like?" And, oh, he's fantastic. You'll love him. Oh, you'll nail it. You'll see. Because I, I didn't know if he'd come. But three o'clock on the dot, the door opened, and in walked John. And he didn't even come in the control booth. The door was at the end of the studio. As he got to the weather, mic was set up. I said, stop there, John. You know, put those headphones on. We'll play you the track. He sang it in one take, just like that. And you were there going, oh, wow. Saved by the I bell. Saved by the bell. <laughs> I loved it. I, just, I heard that story this morning. I go, I've got to ask Simon because that is one of the best. And, and best Albert's owned 2UE, which is one of the two pop stations. Of course, back in the day, yeah. And they put it on air that night. That's one of the best A&R stories I've ever heard in and, terms of discovery. By, number, by Friday, it was in the top five, Sydney top Unbelievable. five. Unbelievable. Um, and out of the blue, about three or four years ago, I got an email from John Paul Young. And he said, Simon, today is the 50th anniversary of the day that you came up to me outside a pub in Newcastle with a cigar in your mouth. I, did, I couldn't remember the cigar. And said, uh, would you like to make a hit, hit record? Wow. Uh, thank you very much. I've had years. a wonderful life. 50 years. <laughs> that, I, just, I just so love that story. So you also worked in, obviously, UK, US, but Spain, Russia, France. 
What's been your favourite experience in terms of geography? Where have you enjoyed? Oh, and, and I'm not talking in terms of success, just where you felt at home and why. I like and travelling. I like getting on planes. I mean, you know, I unashamedly like travelling first class or business class and having, sitting on a plane and being alone. It's less good now. We've got Wi-Fi. Um, I like the time away. No one's going to phone you. You can have a bottle of wine. You know, business class used to. It's less good now. used to give you fantastic wines. Mm. Um, I was always completely unashamed of opening, having a glass of each of the eight bottles. I'll have a glass of each. I don't care. I don't care if I'm the only passenger. You can open them for me. Um, I enjoy flying. I enjoy travelling. I think America's the place I like least. No, I don't dislike it, but I don't enjoy being there much. Australia's one of the places I enjoy being a great deal. And I enjoy all of Asia. And I've been a lot in Asia. And I live now in Thailand. And, of course, I got wham into China, which is... Which one I want to talk about next. It's a lot of going to China. Um, I, enjoy all, I enjoy the travel. I enjoy... I mean, there was... In Indonesia, too, I went to Indonesia and, and worked with a top pop manager and singer there and had a number one in Indonesia. It's really fun to go to other countries and then move on again. And I'm not very good at settling down. Just as I didn't want to work in the Brill Building and mm. be trapped, I don't even like being trapped. You know, people have come to me and said, will you do corporate job? Horrific thought, you know. Yeah. Every day going to the office. It doesn't matter if they pay you a million or something. That's, it's irrelevant. It's absolutely a horrible idea. And record production, too. The problem is I was quite a good record producer. I don't know how good I would have been if I'd gone on with it. I, I made a few top ten records. But all the friends I've got who are record producers spend their life in a darkened room mm. night and day for 50, 50 weeks a year. And they, they aim to take two weeks holiday. And the week before the holiday, somebody goes, oh, Mick Jagger's coming in. You can't take a holiday. You know, they, what a life. they never have a day off. It's horrible. What a life. So let's talk about China because you touched on it then. How did you get Wham into China? Because that is one of the greatest um, – well, launches of all time, really. I mean, how does one get an act into it at a time when China was pretty much, not so much closed doors, but it was tough to get in, right? It was closed doors. I mean, yeah. the idea came, and I, when I started managing Wham, I had a partner, Jazz Summers. We were two managers yep. together. And we went and had dinner with George and Andrew, and George said, we want to be the biggest group in the world, and you've got a year. And I just laughed. I said, it's impossible. You know, the biggest group in the world has to be the biggest group in America because that's 60% of the mm. world market. And no one's ever done it under four years. The Beatles took four years, for Christ's mm. sake. You can't do it under that. There's no national press. There's no national television. You have to go there and go again. You have to play on each coast. You have to tour around. It's not quick. And he said, well, you've got a year. Very arrogant, which I like, and that's yeah. what artists should be. And then Jazz said, oh, a lot of wine went down. And he said, you know, maybe you could be the first group ever to play in Communist China. And George said, yeah, that's a good one. Do that. Do that. You know? And so a week later. Thinking uh, you weren't going to go ahead with it, right? Thinking it was just a flippant remark. Oh, you know, George yeah, said, that's good. Yeah, if that gets it, that's that the year I want, do it in the year. You know? Yeah. And so a week later, I set off. And I, I, first of all, I tried to get a visa. And I said, you can't get a visa. You, ha you could only get visas by government invitation. You could only travel with a group, with a business group, correct authorization. But a friend of mine told me he knew someone in Hong Kong who would get me in. So I flew out to Hong Kong, and I went to see this guy he recommended, and, and at a little seedy office up five floors. And uh, he gave me a little bit of paper, and he said, if you get the train to Guangzhou, and when you get to Guangzhou, you go to the immigration grate at the left, and you wait for Mr. Lee P. D. to come in duty and give him this bit of paper, and he'll let you in. And... That's what happened, you know. So a day later, I found myself in Guangzhou in China, illicitly there without correct visa, uh, alone, without a traveling party, but in China. 
And I managed to get myself to Beijing by attaching myself to a German touring party. Illicitly, I just joined in. You're right. And um, got to Beijing, got into the Holiday Inn Hotel, which is the only hotel where foreigners could check in, and sat in my room. I thought, what am I doing? (laughs) Probably the only person in the whole of China who can give permission is Deng Xiaoping, who's the president, probably the third most important person in the entire world. And I was sitting in a Holiday Inn, how do we get in there? And I, I called the British Embassy and they sent me a book with the name of all the ministries, written in English, with the names of all the ministers and the people in the ministry. And I started at the top and I started phoning. <coughs> and I phoned one minister after another, trying to find someone who spoke English. I mean, mm. it was, sometimes it was the cleaning lady who spoke English. Somebody spoke English. And each one I said, could you give them a message to the minister, tell him, Simon Napier-Bellis, come from London to take him to lunch. And could he call me back? I left the number of the Holiday Inn. And after two days, I was so depressed and miserable sitting no in the hotel room, I went back to England. Uh-huh. And um, the next month, I came back again. When I checked in the Holiday Inn, they said, you've had a phone call. And one of the ministers I called had called. And he duly came to see me. Arrived in, in a bicycle, in a chairman mouse suit. You know, in, in Australia, he'd arrive in a Mercedes with a chauffeur or something. Now, chairman mouse suit took his bicycle clips off as he walked into the thing. And said, very pleased to meet you, very pleased to hear you want to buy coal from Jiangxi. And he got me bundled up with somebody else, some Norwegian guy who wanted to buy coal for the government. Um, and so I laughed. And he spoke quite good English. And I said, no, you've got the wrong person. And he said, oh, but I said, never mind, you're here now, let's have lunch. So I took him up to the restaurant, and, and the, the restaurant was the only one in Beijing which had good food because you could only play in dollars. This is the only hotel which foreigners could stay in. Yeah. You had to pay in dollars. So the food was actually really good, edible food. And Beijing was a horrible place. Was it wasn't Western food? Uh, no, it's Chinese, Chinese food, food. with good ingredients, right. like, all imported. Not right. Right. And, you know, the food had got to a terribly bad level by mid-80s. And, and I must say, Beijing had no skyscrapers. It's you know, a one-level concrete jungle, horrible. Mm. Like like a like a prison block, really. Yes. And um, I told him, actually, I'm in the music business, and I want to talk about perhaps bringing a musical artist to China. Can you help me? And he said, well, I can't help you. I'm a minister of energy. But, you know, I could bring somebody else. I said, well, I'll come back next month. Will you bring another minister? And he said, will they eat in this restaurant? And I said, yeah, oh, I'll bring you lots. It's good food. So next week, next month, I went back, and I had four ministers. Wow. And this went on month after month for 18 months until eventually I was getting ministers who had something to do with entertainment or it was the Minister of Youth, that's the one I latched onto. Right. And bit by bit by bit, I told them the story and finally I got an invitation. And look, and then once you got the invitation, how much planning was there involved and how long did it take you to finally get the boys to, to, to the concert? Well, not much. I mean, you know, the, the final limitation, um, I, I mean, I had lunch one day and I said, you know, if, if, if one day perhaps you did invite a group to come and play it'd be wonderful it was the group I managed wham and, and you know, if, it, if they did come it'd be great if it was say next month on a, you know the 20th or whatever I can't remember what I said and they said okay and then um, that was it so we didn't have long to plan but China had nothing I mean we didn't even have fuse wire we, we had to hire a 747 to take everything light bulbs spare light bulbs wow. spotlights we didn't trust them to have anything at all but it became a wonderful story global story didn't it well, it did, did what we planned. Yeah. We had 90 television crews. Wow. The, the front half of the downstairs, which normally seated 2,000 people, instead had 90 television crews from every single television outlet in the world. And the week after 
they played in Beijing, Wham were on in America, which is the whole point, were on ABC, CBS, and CBS News every hour on the hour, 20, 24 hours, seven days. And by the end of that week, Wham were the biggest group in America. Yeah. Could you replicate that today with one of the bigger pop artists, do you think? Or do you, is, no, I mean, the world's still... too... I mean, there was no internet. Mm. There was no connection. There was That's no a, way anyone out of the country could hear. No one in any other country could hear anything of what you're doing in any other country. So the only way was... Tele- well, it's not even television. It was film. I mean, those crews out front mm. were not sending live pictures back. Mm. You know, they were sending film the next day on, on planes. Um, there was no international live television at all. It mm. hadn't started. And so it, could, it couldn't happen any other way that in those days. And nowadays, you, you couldn't keep the truth. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't hide it. So it couldn't happen now. No, you couldn't. It's, it's an, I love that. Now, here's one for you. Here's a, I don't know if you call it a curveball, but I'm intrigued by your answer to this one. What is the biggest misconception about you? <laughs> wow. Um, <coughs> I don't know. What do people there's think got about to be some, There's got to be something. I've no idea. I, I write about myself in quite a flippant way. And then everyone thinks, you know, it's very modest of you. But <laughs> but perhaps I'm not as good as they think I am, and I'm accurate, quite accurate when I write, write about Because, myself. you know, I, I met you for the first time last night, and I said to my partner, I said, he's one of the most modest people. <laughs> yeah, it could be the truth. It could be the truth. <laughs> I, I did. I said, he might be one of the most modest people. You know, I've met... You know, quite a few people from your era of the time, and not everyone has got you know the modest flair like you did last night. And I was very impressed by that. Well, there you are. Perhaps the misconception is that I'm modest, and I'm not modest at all. I'm just telling the truth. I really don't know much about what I'm doing, Um, but I sort of latch on, and Mm. things work out. And then I say, well, I take, I take the, I don't take the credit really, but I'm happy to take the benefit. Now, so further to that, if you could change anything about yourself, then what would it be? Anything. Well, you know, like anyone a bit overweight, I'd like to lose some weight. (laughs) And sometimes I think, what would I do tomorrow if I won 50 million on the lottery? And I think I'd lose weight. And I think, you stupid sod, why did you do that anyway? (laughs) Yeah, why not? (laughs) Now, now you've been around for quite a while, and you've seen so many changes in the music business, both technological and otherwise. What's one thing or a couple of things that have never changed? Nothing has changed. All that's changed is all that's changed is the infrastructure and the administration of distribution. You know, when radio started, everyone said that's the end of records. We'll never send another record. Music is now free, mm. and of course, quite the opposite happened. When the internet started, everyone said that's it. We'll never sell another recording. We'll never make any money. They've now found you make money for streaming, and that merchandise of all sorts makes money way in excess of records. And live performances have got even more expensive and mm. made more money. The, the three key things in the industry are a corporate infrastructure, which I, I was trying to explain it in my keynote talk today. 50% of the music industry is represented by three or four major corporations, CBS, Sony, Warner, Universal. And perhaps they own all the publishing companies too. Perhaps the two major agencies, CAA and William Morris, and the collection societies, ASCAP, BMI, and the UK, PRS here, the Australian PRS. That is the corporate side of the business. Their only interest of any sort is money. Yes. They're not interested in music. When Lucian Grain stands up, we're so proud of the music. Oh, stuff that. He's interested in that. He then spends half an hour telling you the profit every division has made. And if they could make money selling the sound of a bottle... <laughs> 
just banging on the table. <laughs> They'd sell that. And so they couldn't give a toss about music. It's money. And I don't disagree with it because money doesn't have taste. So they sell us the music we want to hear. Mm. Now, if money, if, if, it, it sounds difficult to say, but they they wouldn't even think of trying to sell us music we didn't want because they wouldn't make money. And so the fact they want money means they'll never try to influence our taste. What we want, we'll get. We have bad taste, we'll get bad music. Good taste, we'll get good music. And that infrastructure runs, it's like, if you like, the government mm. of the music industry. Mm. It's, it states the prices. It, ma it makes sure there's always money flowing. The money is needed. Money is needed for investment, to, to, to water all our projects. And, um, so that's good. But the exciting side of the music business, the people who count, the people who make things happen, who find new artists, who create new music, are below that. They're the independent managers, the independent record companies. Mm. Sometimes the record companies act pretty much like managers. Sometimes some of the independent music publishers do. The artists, the unsigned artists. Most of the signed artists voluntarily jump into the corporate side and like it and then complain about all the things which are non-corporate. But uh, there's the two levels of the music industry. And I don't like the corporate side. I wouldn't want to be in it. I wouldn't want to work for the government and be a civil servant and go to the office every day. But I don't think it's unnecessary. It's completely necessary. You need it, yeah. I really respect it. It works very well. But you mustn't misunderstand it. It is there to make money and to make sure that the money is there to run the music industry. And then we use that money and the, their distribution and their need to, to, to make sure money is flowing all the time. We use that to be creative and have fun. And reinvest, I guess. And basically, it's fun. Mm. Everyone I know who's of any importance in the industry, if you go back, because I've written several books, and one particular, which is called The Business, which is the history of the whole music industry, going back to this. It began when copyright was invented, and copyright meant you could buy and sell music. And every single person who's of any note or importance or your respect on the business side were in it for fun. If you think it's like Arvid Ertigan is a great example because respect what a wonderful man he joined Warners and became part no he didn't he, he sold his company to Warners but his interest was fun music making being, records being out with the musicians making some records mm. getting drugged drugged and having a good time he, you know all the great people in the business were the people who liked it and had fun and creatives and the people in the corporate side they're as dull as ditch water <laughs> Now, managers, I finding this day these days more and more and more the role of the manager is essentially A and R. Has that always been the case, where the manager finds well, the I artist, think I've develops described, the yeah, artist? I mean, the, the manager, uh, my 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 description of A and R is broader than music. Mm. My description of A and R is you have to look for the artist who's going to attract your attention and who has that inner drive to push it through. But I think as A and R, you're looking at that too. Yeah, we are. You've got to look for somebody who's determined to succeed and can produce good music as a writer or a singer uh, and perform it and present himself in an attractive way. You know, A&R should never have been an industry. Just as managers exist outside record companies, A&R would be best outside record companies. Yes. I believe that's what you're doing. Yes. Um, but A&R is the transition. It's the entry gate, the entry people. And as such, I don't like them much um, because, you know, the, the industry has always worked on the basis of one and two. Every 10 artists they sign, one has to be successful. That is the money system they've worked out. It's the structure of the corporate industry. That means they're happy for their A&R men to be 90% unsuccessful. That means when you sign a contract as an artist with a record company, you're accepting 
and 90% guarantee that you'll be a failure. Yes. And that's a terrible thing to be signing. And that's because of A&R being allowed to work on a 90-10 basis. For that reason, I can't like A&R, even though many of them are really good at their job and mm. very nice people and do their best to pick the best artists. The fact they're allowed to work on a 1 in 10 success ratio means that they're the people who entice you into signing these contracts, which guarantee 90% chance of failure. As a manager, are we doing the same thing when we're signing our artists to, to management contracts? Yeah. Are we doing the same thing as managers? Well, no. I mean, I haven't. I, mean, I, I, I don't sign 10 artists to get one success. Right. I mean, I haven't had to do that. I've no, been you're... luckier than that in having said, I mean, I wouldn't say I've had more than 50-50, but I would say for every success, every failure I've had a success, success. I've been about one, one to one. Which is the, the, the right I put ratio. a lot of time into it. I mean, Japan took four years to get their first hit record. That's incredible amount of investment in, it is. in time and personal money. But um, I think if you, I mean, I do, when I do believe, believe in something, I find it very difficult to drop out again. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, what's the biggest threat then to the, the, the music industry? What? The biggest threat to the music industry today? Deafness. <laughs> yeah, besides deafness. Nothing. No? There's nothing that you think? Well, I mean, the music, and, you know, I said at the beginning, it, what changed was infrastructure only. You, you always have artists. Artists are people who need, desperately need, love and attention from the general public. For, for various childhood reasons, they grow up with a psychological defect which requires them to need something which isn't always pleasant to get because they're mobbed and they can't have a private life, but they need, need that love. The industry is a corporate structure which needs artists. It doesn't need, doesn't need musicians. Musicians are irrelevant. They're like plumbers. They fix the drain when it goes wrong. They'll come and do what they're paid for. It needs stars. And star songwriters, stars, star songwriters, star performers. It's a star industry. And managers are the people, or you say A&R, let's call independent A&R or managers, mm. are the people who work to feed the appropriate artists into the corporate side and stick around if they're managers. They then stick around and help them happen. And how about? Mm. Not, that's never changed. It hasn't changed. You've, initially, the currency was printing music on a piece of paper and selling it, sheet music. Then records came along in the 1900s. The radio, when you got played for radio performances, um, then albums, and today streaming. But that's the three main structures of the artists, the corporate need to make money, and the managers who help the artists into the corporate structure. They haven't changed one bit. I like that answer, I really do. So Simon, if you're a great author, you've written quite a few books, now, imagine there was a book written about you. Who would you prefer wrote that book? And who would write the, the foreword or the, or, the, or the preface? <laughs> what an extraordinary question. Are yes. they paying me? Yes. Oh, well, who paid me the most? <laughs> no, seriously. Who, who, would, who would you have write that, that, that book? Who, who, who I'm, not, I'm not, you know, that sounds like a, a very monetary answer, but it's a very sensible answer. Because mm. having been in the music business so long, I recognise that money, forget money in the sense of one always means of the, the devil's this or that. Money is an indication of public um, public accessibility, the, the public liking what you've done. 
if the book which sells the most will make the most money, it will sell the most if it's the most readable, interesting, fun book. Mm. I couldn't care less if someone wrote a book about me and it, it wasn't true, there wasn't one word in it true, if it was a fun and interesting and readable book. And if somebody wrote this wonderfully serious, detailed book about me and it wasn't fun and interesting, nobody wanted to read it, that'd be terrible. So it would be the person who paid the most money because they were presumably going to market it and, and make it sell the most. So it's not really money in that sense. It's someone who'd make it popular. When we make films, the, and in some degree getting record deals isn't any different, when you make films, it's incredibly difficult to raise the money to make a film. And you go to the people who put money in the film with the idea they might give you money for. You, you're not going to make that film. That's, you're just right. bamboozling them. You get the money, they make the film you want to make, hope the hell you've made a film they can sell. <laughs> they then look disappointed it isn't the film they wanted, but then they recognise, oh, this is a pretty good film. Well, we've done all right. Well, it's the same like that with a book, isn't it? If you're going to write about me, That's right. take me as a subject, now write a good book. I don't care if it's about me or not. <laughs> Say what you want. Sell the book. That's, That's great. A, That's a good idea. Now, um, the one last thing before we, before we go. So you're still doing it after all these years. What keeps you motivated? Because, you know, you could have rested on your laurels and, and you know, you live, I know you're living in Thailand now and you could have retired happily in Thailand, but you still have this voracious appetite for work and for creativity because you're still involved in the music industry. I get bored very easily. Right. I mean, if, if I've got a list of things to do today so long I can't even get to the end and I get through it, I'm then bored. Yeah, I find it extraordinary. So what, what are you doing at the moment? I've just promised my publisher I'll write another book. So that's a thousand hours work, roughly. Writing a book's a thousand hours. So that's what you do it over a year. It's, it's four hours a day. Mm. So that's just 24 hours a day. I sleep about six. So I've got 18, two hours to eat, six hours is 12 hours left. Got to be filled up. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do a lot of consultancy. Um, I like that because it involves me with a much broader range of artists I could be involved with if I just do management. And I also get involved with the managers often, right. which is nice. Some of the consultancy with managers who are a bit out of their depth, they've been lucky, they've got a hit with an artist and they haven't had enough experience to really deal with it. They come to me and I do one-to-one -one management on Zoom or something. And that's quite rewarding. And I do a lot of corporate management where companies come to me and say, we've got this artist and their manager isn't much good and can you help us? Um I do uh, films. I'm about to start another yes. film. I've done four major 90-minute documentaries for Netflix, two of them, uh, one for Amazon, one for uh, Sky Arts. I'm about to start another one. I can't tell you what it is because we've said we won't announce it for another month. Um, I'm about to start another one. Um, and uh, what else? I write books. I do semi-management with consultancy i'll make films what else do i have to do is there something else there's, there's nothing else left to do simon <laughs> there, there really isn't i try to have i try to find time for good meals every day oh, absolutely it's, it's a must we'll leave you i want to leave you with one one more question because i think this one's an important one what do you want to be remembered for the most i couldn't give a toss you don't care i knew you're gonna i knew well, you're gonna say that dead, i mean just i, I knew you were gonna say even, that i wouldn't like to think yo my partner's even gonna waste money putting me in the box <laughs> Put the, you see these people go and buy expensive boxes, and uh, we live in Thailand, so everyone gets cremated. Yes. Well, put me in cardboard for that. <laughs> Are you seriously? <laughs> what? what you, you're gone, you're you, gone. Come but on. Surely you want, you want to be remembered for What's the one thing when, why, when, I, when why people would think I care? Simon Napier-Bell, what, what do you hope people would remember you for? I couldn't care less. You couldn't care less. 
well, I'm, you know, I'm here now. Mm. It's nice to be thought well of enough that you can earn, some, earn a living and be entertained and loving. Last night I had dinner with you. And it's what was a wonderful it? evening. It That's fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. But should I be sitting and thinking, when I'm dead, I'd like to think you're having similar evenings thinking about me. I'm no. not there. I just, it's being there, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. Simon, listen, it's been an honour, a real honour and a pleasure. I, I remember when Jane told me you were coming, I, I got so excited. I thought, I'm going to meet a, you know, a living legend. And you were, it was a fantastic dinner last night, and I learned a lot more about you today. And and long may continue. I think you're fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, I, I agree with long may continue. I think you're a treasure, and a, a, a treasure in all countries, including thank Australia. So thanks very much for your time. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Vinyl Tap Inside the Music Industry, the podcast, Michael Parisi. If you enjoyed that episode, please go to my website for more information about any of my guests www.vinyltappodcast.com all one word of course and we'll see you on next week's installment